You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And it's great to be with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for making the trek down here to Bethahaba. Uh, If you're newish to City Church and you're wondering, what am I doing here in the synagogue? Uh, Well, this is our annual off-site service. So Grace Covenant, our hosts down the street, uh, have an evening service. So we come here. And this is, as has been mentioned somewhat before, this is a place that City Church met for years prior to meeting at Grace Covenant. Actually, even before myself and my family were in Richmond. So for those who've been in the City Church family for a longer time, this annual off-site service has a bit of nostalgia to it. It's become somewhat of a tradition, a reminder of some of the earlier years of the church. And of course, Tis the season for traditions, right? If you're anything like my family, your traditions are probably in full swing right now. Uh, At our house, the Advent calendars are out, the Advent candles are lit, the Christmas tree is up, and Charlie Brown's uh, Christmas vinyl is spinning on the record player constantly. But I do have one personal holiday tradition I have yet to do. And that's my annual watch of Rick Steves' European Christmas. If you've ever traveled, you might know Rick Steves. He's a tour guide. And in this short documentary, he goes around Europe with his family looking at different ways that people in Europe celebrate Christmas. there um, There are English lessons and carol services. He goes to Germany for the Christmas markets. He does Santa Lucia Day in Sweden and candlelit fondue in Switzerland. Now, you might be wondering, why is that such a dearly held personal tradition of mine? Well, a few years ago, around Christmas time in 2020, something really weird happened with my back. And long story short, it left me essentially bedridden for weeks. My back, if I moved, would just go into a spasm. And while the pain of that was miserable, I would say that the depression it caused in me was probably just as bad. I was lonely. I felt guilty about not being able to work, not being able to participate in the kind of holiday festivities with my family. I was a mopey mess, and I would just lay around in bed watching YouTube videos. But then, in the midst of uh, the bleak midwinter of my discontent, The YouTube algorithm blessed me with Rick Steves. This documentary was brought up into my recommendations. I watched it. And about halfway through, I found myself essentially weeping, watching these French children sing, Bring a Torch, Jeanette Isabella. Now, no doubt, that sounds crazy. But you see, the cozy little vignettes of family and friends gathering uh, to celebrate Christmas touched a tender spot in my soul, one that longed to do the same with my family, one that longed to not be laid, laid up in bed with a bum back. 
And so by the end of the show, it was really weird. I found myself nostalgic for traditions I had never participated in and homesick for places that I had never been. And though that might sound a little bit dramatic, I actually want to submit to you this afternoon that I think that underneath so many of our Christmas traditions, that they are deep down expressions of that same kind of melancholic longing. I mean, think about our songs that we sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones that I used to know. Or the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Melancholic longing is shot through so much of what we do. Underneath the kind of surface level holly jolliness of the season, there's something really deep going on. You see, outside it's dark and cold, and I don't just mean the weather, I mean the world feels like that as well. And if we're even, if we're honest, sometimes our hearts even feel like that. But despite that, we deeply want what Christmas represents. And so we string up the Christmas tree, we put a fire in the fireplace, we gather, we, you know, we snuggle up with our family and we exchange gifts and sing songs and watch movies. All of this is kind of our way of hoping against hope, raging against the dying of the light. And if we're attentive to it, I think this shows us that beneath all of our songs and decorations and traditions, there is this nostalgic longing for something we haven't yet participated in. A homesickness for a land that we haven't been to. We long for somewhere where it's a, a place full of love and peace and warmth. A place that is shot through with the breathless wonder of a child waking up on Christmas Day. And in today's text, what we're going to learn is that the reason that's going on in our hearts is because we were actually made for that. We were made to dwell with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So if you would, please turn with me in your worship guides or in your Bible to Revelation 21. It's the final book of the Bible. Revelation 21, we're going to read verses 1 to 5 and skip down to 22 to 23. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then skipping down to 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you today, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this Advent season, uh, we've been in a sermon series called God With Us. It's tracing the Emmanuel principle, this idea that all throughout Scripture, God looks at us and he says, I'm going to be with you, so call me Emmanuel, which means God with us. And today, we're going to look to the final book of the Bible to see the consummation of the Emmanuel principle, the promise that God will be with us forever. And today's passage unfolds this promise for us in a vision, a vision of God's forever place inhabited by God's forever people who dwell in God's forever presence. So first, let's consider God's forever place. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but our house is in a full holiday mode right now. There are garlands of um, dried cherries and oranges hung all over. There are pomanders on the table. There are these paper stars hung from the ceiling. There are candles in the windows. And granted, part of this is just a strategy to... uh, fend off some seasonal affective disorder. But it also comes from the fact that my wife, Brittany, is really good at making a house feel like a home. Maybe you've felt that before if you've been in our house. You know, that's actually a a family value of ours. We want our house to feel like a home. We want it to be a place where, of respite, a place where you walk in and you're able to take a deep breath. You're able to lower your tensed shoulders. You're able to shed the cares of the day. And I know this isn't unique to us. I've been in your, many of your houses before, and your houses have the same effect. They truly feel like homes. We all want our homes to be places of comfort and safety and security. I mean, after all, the home is where the heart is. And that sentiment is thick this time of year. Again, think about our Christmas music. I'll be home for the holidays. There's no place, or I'll be home for Christmas. There's no place like home for the holidays. Whenever we enter into this mode of nostalgic longing in Christmas, our minds almost immediately go to the idea of home, whether a literal place or just the idea of it. And of course, if we know our Bible, we should, we should know where that comes from. You see, home is a, it's a prominent theme throughout Scripture. In fact, in Genesis, the Bible opens up with God making a home perfectly fit for humans, the Garden of Eden. And so it's ingrained in us from, the very, uh, from our very creation to want to feel at home in a place. But the problem of this is that the feeling of home is fleeting. It's tenuous. And if you're a parent, you know this. One rainy weekend with your kids all cooped up in the house for a couple of days, and that cozy home of yours is almost immediately turned into a post-apocalyptic wasteland. The place that was once a, a place of peace and tranquility becomes a cesspool of anxiety and stress. Toys everywhere, uh, snacks smeared into the carpet. 
Well, according to the Bible, the reason that the, the feeling of home is so fleeting and tenuous is because of sin. You see, sin is like a tornado going through a, a residential neighborhood. It makes uh, the world that was meant to be our home unlivable. It wrecks everything. And so because of this, we have this tension of, at one hand, desiring to feel at home in this world, but on the other hand, not being able to. It's kind of like um, if you're on a long road trip, maybe over the holidays, you're on a long road trip and you try and sleep in the car. You're so desperate to sleep, and so you try and catch some shut-eye. But, you know, you may get a little bit, but it's always going to be fitful. You're always going to be tossing and turning, maneuvering to try and find a better, more cozy place to lay. But ultimately, you can't find one because that's not what a car seat or a car, yeah, a car seat is designed for. Well, friends, the same is true for us. You see, this broken world is not designed for us to live in it forever. It's not our forever place. But rather than letting this frustrate us or send us into despair, I think it should, strangely enough, actually give us a sense of hope. C.S. Lewis was onto this when he wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, this is precisely the case for us. We'll never be fully at home in this world because our lasting home is in the world to come. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. He's using the language of being a sojourner or a pilgrim. And he writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That heavenly dwelling that he's talking about is the new heavens and the new earth that we just read about. That is God's forever place. And so for all of the goodness of this life and for all of the goodness of the homes that we make in it, the reality is that you and I are, just like the old gospel hymn says, poor wayfaring strangers wandering through this world below. Or, as the author of Hebrews puts it, We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, fix your eyes on heaven. Seek the city that is to come. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, he's quoted as saying that if you don't know which port you're sailing to, no wind is favorable. And what he means by that is if you aren't consciously moving toward your destination, then you're going to be tossed to and fro by the winds. Again, Paul uh, talks about this in Ephesians. He's saying that if we don't keep our eyes fixed on heaven, we're going to be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So friends, fix your eyes on heaven. Seek the city that is to come. The question, though, is how do we do that? And that brings me to my second point. You see, we aren't called to make this journey alone. God has given us companions for the road. He's given us his forever people to accompany accompany us to his forever place. 
You know, as much as home is an integral part of our uh, Christmas traditions, so too are people. I mean, think about it. You celebrate with family, you celebrate with friends, uh, you celebrate with your church, obviously. You even celebrate with your co-workers. What a, the miracle of Christmas is that we somewhat enjoy being around our co-workers for a party. Again, so I do this every sermon now, but not me. I actually do enjoy my co-workers, which are in this room. Um, but it, it, togetherness is integral to this season. I mean, isn't that what the story of the Grinch is all about? His heart grows, or we might say that his heart is restored as he's brought into community. Well, just like our longing for a place to call home points us to the new heavens and the new earth, our longing for a people, our longing to be seen and to be known and to be loved by others points us to God's forever people, the church. In verse 2, we're given a really odd visual. A city that's coming down from heaven, that's pretty strange, but then, even stranger, it's prepared as a bride. What's going on here? Well, you see, this is a callback to a theme that's prominent in the Old Testament. Jerusalem, also sometimes called Zion, is used to refer not just to a place, but also to a people, God's people, the covenant people. And God's love for his people is so intimate and so personal and so committed that it can only be spoken of in marital terms. You've heard echoes of this throughout the sermon, especially in our call to worship. But even more explicit, we find this uh, even more explicit in passages like Isaiah 6. God is addressing Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married." For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. And that may be, uh, you know, catching your attention because we know as we get into uh, into the New Testament that this is a theme that's also picked up. Paul in Ephesians 5 He's in the middle of a discourse about marriage, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In this passage, Paul introduces a subtle but important development in the church as bride theme. You see, it's not just purely sentimental that, how, about how much God loves his people, though that is certainly true. But it's more than that because this idea of uh, Christ and the church being married shows us the extent of Jesus' love for us. It shows us the direction or the telos of his love for us. Just as a husband and wife unite and become one flesh, so too did Christ and his church become one? And this is precisely what we celebrate at Christmas. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes like us so that we might become like him. 
I, I love the way that the theologian Robert Lethem explains this. He says, the basis for our union with Christ is Christ's union with us in the incarnation. We can become one with him because he first became one with us. By taking human nature into personal union, the Son of God has joined himself to humanity. He now has a human body and soul which he will never jettison. Friends, that last line that he wrote about is so, so important. He has a, the, the, he has a human body and soul that he'll never jettison. You see, the reason that you and I can be assured that we have a lasting home, really and truly, in heaven is because Jesus is currently seated there at the right hand of the Father in the flesh. The very same flesh that you and I are united to through faith, by faith through the Holy Spirit. To, to use a really imperfect analogy, it's, it's kind of like when someone goes to an event early to save a seat for you. Friend, Jesus has gone to heaven and saved you a seat there. Because you're united with him, you can rest assured that you have a place in heaven. Despite your continual sin, despite your doubts, despite your fears, you can know that because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, you one day will join him there. And nothing can take that away from you because you're united to him. But I want you to notice who this invitation is for. Or in other words, who Jesus is saving the seat for. He's saving the seat for his church, his people. You see, it's so tempting in the Christian life to think that we can do it alone, to have a kind of lone ranger outlook on faith. And I think that's especially true when you look at the church and you see hypocrisy, you see abuse, you see scandal. You think, why would I want to be associated with something like that? But friends, when we feel that, we have to see the church in light of what God has promised it's going to become. I wonder, have you ever watched someone sculpt, make a sculpture? I've watched a couple of videos of it. Um, let's say that a sculptor starts out and he, has a, he or she has a, a block of marble. There's no beauty or form to it at first. It's just a block of marble. And then the sculptor takes the chisel and starts to hack away in it. And if anything, for a while, it actually looks worse. It looks like that block of marble fell down a flight of stairs. It looks broken. But in the mind of the sculptor, there's something of immense beauty that is in there that is being revealed. And so with each chip of the chisel, a form starts to emerge a face, a hand, a leg. And before you know it, something of incredible beauty stands before you. From our vantage point, the church can seem like just that bare block of marble. Or it can even just seem like uh, that block of marble that's got all seemingly random chips in it. It can seem like it's broken and beaten. But in today's passage, we get to see the church like God sees it. A beautiful bride, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, arrayed in splendor with his love and glory. So friends, stick with the church. 
even when it's hard, even when the church seems like a lifeless block of marble or one that's fallen down a staircase, stick with it because God has promised to stick with the church forever. And if he can, so can you. Now, as we talk about this, I want to move into our third and final point. You see, the church doesn't make itself beautiful by its own merits. It's not that the church glorifies itself by somehow becoming, uh, reaching a point where no one in the church sins anymore. Everyone's perfectly righteous on their own. The church becomes beautiful by coming into the, into the presence of God and reflecting His beauty. You see, what we see in this passage is that what makes heaven so great is that God is at the center of it. And His glory fills all of the new heavens and new earth. Look again at verses 22 to 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the Old Testament, the temple represented to the people of Israel God's personal presence with them. It was where he dwelled among them. But despite that, there was still distance. Uh, only on one day of the, of the Hebrew calendar could the, whole, could the um, priest enter into the Holy of Holies. And even then, he had to make sacrifices for himself to go in. And he had to veil himself from God's presence. There was distance. And then that we get to uh, the incarnation and we see that Jesus tabernacles among us. It's glorious. He, he embodies to us God's presence. And yet, after his resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so, despite the fact he gives us of the Holy Spirit and he lives within us through the Holy Spirit, there is still distance, physical distance. And because of that, there remains in us this deep, fundamental longing to be with Jesus in the flesh. David talks about this in Psalm 27. He writes, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David, throughout the Psalms, has asked for so many things. That's what the Psalms are, is David asking God for things. But here in Psalm 27, he says, but if there's one thing that I desire above all else, it's to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And friends, that's precisely what you and I will have in the new heavens, of, new heavens and new earth. In Jesus, God will be with us forever. You know, in this life, there often feels like there is so much distance between us and God. It often feels like God has, God's face is, is hidden from us. We cry out, as the psalmist often does, God, where are you? And then we may even start to believe that God isn't there. Where did he go? But I want you to see that that experience that's so common now has an expiration date. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the age to come, we will never wonder if God is with us. His presence and glory is going to be so thick, so self-evidently there, that we'll never doubt it. 
It's going to be like standing in, the, standing in the middle of the field under the sun on the hottest day of the year. You can't get away from the sun being there. You would never doubt that the sun's there. That's how it's going to be with God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. It's a, it's a non-starter to even doubt it because it's so there. And I want you to notice two things that happen when God's forever presence dwells with his people. First, it drives away the darkness of sin and evil. So verse 1 ends in a really odd way. It says, and the sea was no more. And read very plainly, this just seems kind of like a a strange throwaway or a non sequitur. But the sea uh, serves as as a really thick metaphor in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it represents evil and chaos and danger. It's, uh, the sea is what overtook the world in the great flood. The sea is the place from which warring nations would come to try and take over Israel. And then we get in the New Testament, especially in, in the book of Revelation, and we see that one of the three beasts, these kind of antichrist figures who are, form an inverted, unholy trinity, one of these beasts comes up from the sea. It's a place of evil and chaos. That's what it represents. But in its saying here that the sea was no more, we're being told that the very source of evil itself is going to be stopped up by the presence of the glory of God. In overthrowing Satan and in doing away with sin, God forever will do away with anything that could ever threaten his new creation. The forever presence of God is going to bring about that justice and that peace that we so deeply long for. Whenever we feel that longing here, we need to look and remember that it's coming and that we should wait expectantly upon it. But I also want you to see something else. Second, I want you to see that the forever presence of God is going to bring about eternal comfort. Look at uh, verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Bible is full of such good news, and there are such glorious passages, and this is one of the most glorious. Because our life, this side of heaven, is full of all of these things. And God's telling us there's going to be a day in which those are going to be no more. Why? Because of the purifying secure presence of God. Friends, I want you to think about all the ways that you and I try to manage and control our lives so that we don't have to experience mourning and crying and pain and fear. We spend so much of our lives running from those things, but what God is saying here is there's going to be a day where we don't have to run anymore, where we don't have to clench so tightly to our life to try and avoid these things because they're not going to be there anymore. I want you to think about all the tears that you have cried in 2023. And I want you to think about all the things that have caused them. All of the fears, all of the anxieties, all of the agonies. Those will be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. You won't have reason to cry anymore. And whatever tears that you carry with you from this life into the life that is to come, Jesus himself will wipe from your eyes. 
In closing, friends, during this uh, final week of Advent, whenever you feel yourself nostalgic for an experience that you haven't had, or homesick for a land to which you've never gone, I want you to press into that, and I want you to let that feeling draw your heart to the new heavens and the new earth. I want it to help you seek the city that is to come. And I want to remind you of the great promise of Christmas. That God is preparing for us a place in which he will be with us forever. Would you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this great promise that you've given us through um, John's vision. It is so antithetical to our experience of this life that it's hard to believe. And so, Father, we pray that through your Spirit, you would help us to lay hold by faith of this promise. And that it would work back from the future into the now. That the future would pervade the now. And that we would live our lives in light of this coming reality. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.